Would you just uh, show your appreciation for the worship team who had to get here early while you're there, opening presents or whatever? They were, they were here getting ready to, to serve us in this way. Well, Merry Christmas. It's great to, it's great to have everybody here this morning. I asked several kids coming in uh, today, so did you already do your Christmas? And they, and they said, well, no, we opened our stockings, but we're going to open the presents when we get home. And I said, so I suppose you want me to preach a short sermon so f- much fun telling them, don't count on it. <laughs> Some of you remember the controversy that Starbucks created last year when they changed their coffee cups for the holidays. For, for years, they had rather obvious Christmas cups, complete with snowflakes and snowmen and sleds and ornaments. But horror of horrors, last year they introduced a simple red coffee cup. It made the rounds on social media. People were deeply distressed, even offended. Clearly, this was a war on Christmas. Seizing the opportunity, competitor Dunkin' Donuts soon introduced their 2015 coffee cup with, as usual, the word joy... Of course, in red and green with evergreen boughs in the form of a wreath, was clearly a shot across the bow of Starbucks and their sacrilegious red minimalist cups. Dunkin' Donuts even released this statement with the unveiling of their joy cups. For many years, Dunkin' Donuts has served coffee in festive cups featuring the word joy as part of our annual celebration of the season and holiday offerings, we believe this conveys the happiness and spirit of the holiday season in a way that resonates with our guests. Hallelujah, Christmas was saved. Apparently, with the public outcry, Starbucks Starbucks got the message and returned to their Christmas cups this year, again with snow and ornaments and lights, crisis averted, and Christians could breathe easy and return to buy their $4 cups of coffee, like your venti, iced, skinny, hazelnut, macchiato, sugar-free, syrup, extra shot, light, ice, no whip drinks. I don't even know what most of those words mean. I know what ice means. What is wrong with you people drinking cold coffee? Rather obvious question this morning is this. What way do snowflakes and snowmen and ribbons and evergreen wreaths and ornaments and lights put Christmas on display? I mean, certainly they remind us of trees and gifts and winter and lights and Santa and Rudolph. But shockingly, did you know that none of those things appear in the biblical narrative? No mention of cattle lowing or ox or the other animal either. You get that? Did you hear what the pastor said? I don't want to spoil it for anyone. 
Since the shepherds were in the fields watching their flocks by night, it's doubtful that it was winter. Most scholars suggest that Jesus was actually born in the spring, but that's okay. We don't know the actual date, so December 25th is just fine. And so, uh, here you are this morning, I suppose, celebrating Christian Christmas. <laughs> so what is it that makes Christmas Christian? I mean, it's Kind of crazy if you stop to think about it, having to qualify the word Christmas with the word Christian. We've done a good job of removing any semblance of Christianity from the holiday. So, so let's, so here's the question that I want to ask this morning in the midst of, of all of the celebration of Christmas, you know, red cups and all, what is its true meaning Again, I know most of us know that's why we're here, to celebrate the birth of of Jesus, but the question I want to ask is, what's the big deal about the incarnation of Jesus Christ anyway? In, In short, what's the big deal about Christmas? I mean, shouldn't we just fast forward to Easter? What's what's the big deal about Jesus being born? Thankful you are here today, having sung rich uh, Christian Christmas carols. We successfully avoided singing Jingle Bell Rock and White Christmas this season. I want to take a few minutes this morning to answer um, that question. What's the big deal about the incarnation? Obviously, not exhaustively. We'll be happy, but hopefully, encouragingly. We're going to look at the what of the incarnation, the why of the incarnation, and then, interestingly, I think the extent of the incarnation. But let's start with that first one, what it was. That is, what is it that makes Christmas so special to believers? What is it that makes Christmas Christian? We, we read about it in the Christmas narratives in Matthew and, and, and Luke, the, the, the angel Gabriel appears to Mary, and we assume also to Joseph. An angel appears. He's not named. Assume it's Gabriel. Obviously, though, he appears first to Mary in Luke chapter 1. Michael did a great job last night explaining that um, to us. We find she's still single, not yet married to Joseph. In fact, she's still a virgin. Luke makes a big deal about this. Look at it with me. He says, now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee and, and, um, called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David, and the virgin, repeating it, virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But the, she's very perplexed at this statement, kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. Um, for you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and, and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He's going to be great, and he'll be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. And, and then Mary says to, says to the angel, how can this be since I am, there's the word again, I am a, I, I am a virgin, literally what she says there is, I have not known a man, I've not had physical relationships. And the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. For that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the the Son of God. And, And so throughout that text, an emphasis is on the fact that Mary 
was a virgin, and Jesus was to be born of this virgin. In fact, the the Holy Spirit's going to come upon her. The power of the Most High would overshadow her. No physical relationship. Pregnant. As Michael said last night, how is she going to explain that to Joseph? I have no idea how I got pregnant. And in Matthew, we, we read an angel of the Lord took care of that for, appeared to Joseph. See, while Joseph and Mary were betrothed, that is engaged a little bit more than our engagement, before the physical consummation of the marriage, she was found to be with child, found to be pregnant. Look at the Look at the account. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, notice the emphasis, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man, not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. And when he considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, don't you be afraid either. either. Don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She's going to bear a son. Just Joseph, the same thing. You call his name Jesus for he shall save his people from their sins. And the name is Yeshua. It's Joshua. The Lord saves. He's going to save people from their sins. Now, all this took place to fulfill what was spoken um, by the Lord through the prophet, that is Isaiah. Behold, the, the virgin and in, in Isaiah, it's the word Alma, which could be young woman or virgin. Uh, but here, there's, it, it's very clear. It's the word Parthenos, which in the Greek, which means virgin. The virgin will be with child and shall bear a son. And she called his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel uh, of the Lord commanded, took Mary's wife, notice, but kept her a virgin, more literally. Um, he didn't know her. They didn't have physical relationships. And so she gave birth to a son, and she called his name, um, and he called his name Jesus. Now, I know that those are very familiar passages. Perhaps you read them around the tree this morning. But, but notice again the emphasis on Mary being a virgin, resulting in what we call the virgin birth of Jesus, which brings about this thing that we call the incarnation. What does it mean? It means the, the preexistent Son of God became the Son of Man. He took on human flesh. He came and he wrapped himself in, in flesh. We, we know this from John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. Before there was anything, there was the Word with God. And it was through the Word that he created everything that there was. And the Word became flesh. That's what God incarnate means. It means God in flesh. So when Jesus was born... He became the God-man. We sang about it twice in two different songs today, fully God and fully man. In fact, notice some key phrases in those two passages that we just looked at. In Luke, Gabriel said, he will be great. He's going to be called the Son of the Most High. He ends with, this holy child is going to be the Son, we're going to be called the Son of God. This is incredible. Further in Matthew, the angel says, Mary's going to have a son. That is, this human woman is going to bear a human son, but it's going to be by the Holy Spirit such that he's going to be called Emmanuel, God with us. So 
So what's the big deal about the incarnation? Well, well, first, when Jesus was born, he was the God-man, fully God and fully man, God incarnate, Emmanuel, God with us. Unbelievable. So that's what happened on the first Christmas. But, 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 but that leads to the, the next question. So, so why? Why did the second person of the Trinity, preexistent second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, become the Son of Man? Yeah, several reasons could be given. In fact, we could be here for hours, days, but I'll just give you three or four. First, he became a, 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 Jesus became a man so that he would be tempted in every way we, as we are, yet without sin. He wrapped himself in human flesh and lived among us and never sinned. He, you see, he did what we were unable to do. But, but it goes further. He became a man so that in his temptations, he would then be able to aid those who are similarly tempted. We read these words in Hebrews chapter 4. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, but, but he was without sin. He didn't deserve death. He didn't have any sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus became our great high priest who can sympathize with us when we're tempted because he faced the same temptations. We can go to him with, with confidence to find mercy. The idea is to find mercy when we fail and find grace to help in our time of need when we're tempted. Jesus can do that, you see, because of the incarnation. This is great news. But, but further, he, he became a man so that he may suffer. You understand that deity cannot suffer. Jesus never would have suffered anything if he didn't become a man. Again, in Hebrews chapter 2, we read, For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and through whom are all things, and bringing many sons and daughters to glory, to perfect, or we could say mature, the author of their salvation through suffering. Through his sufferings as a, as a man, Jesus was made perfect or made mature to be the perfect one to represent us to God. I said it this way before. Um, he, is the only, he is the one and only God-man, the, the, the perfect one to represent God to man and man to God. In fact, he's the only one that can do that. There is no other who can. There's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. This is the incredible news of the why of the incarnation. You see, ultimately, Jesus became a man so that he might give his life in the flesh for us. You understand, deity not only cannot suffer, it cannot die. So he became a man in order to, to die. The, 
the Christmas story we just read in Matthew and Luke both say, call his name Jesus. Matthew says, because he's going to save his people from their sins. In our study of Mark, we're about to get to the theme verse in chapter 10, for the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So I took on flesh. That's the why of the incarnation. Again, back to Hebrews 2 as to why he took on that flesh, but we do see him who was made for a, a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering and, uh, of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that, here's why he went through suffering and death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Therefore, since the children share, that's us, since we share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same. And through death, he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, he came to defeat him, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For surely he does not give help to angels. Did you know that? He does not help angels. The gospel is not for angels. But he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Therefore, he, is, he had to be made like the brothers and sisters in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation to turn away the wrath of God of his people, of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Do you see how those, that passage, that, the, those verses bring it all together? He came in the flesh on that first Christmas since the children, that is you and me, we are also flesh. He partook of the same so that he could defeat the one who had the power of death over us. He defeated him through his death and resurrection. And through that, he frees us who were subject to slaveries, the slavery of both fear and sin all of our lives. He had, notice, he had to be made like us in all things. He had to be made, take on flesh so that he could be a merciful and faithful high priest so that he could make propitiation for sins. And as a result, he is able to come to our aid when we're tempted, having, you see, he overcame sin in the flesh. He did what we could not do. This is incredible. Red coffee cup? Are, are, you, are you kidding me? Listen, this is the, the, the why. This is, this is why the truth of Christmas is so important. And, and, and by the way, it is non-negotiable. Jesus was born of a virgin to take on flesh, God incarnate, Emmanuel, God with us. I understand there's a there's a bit of a controversy going on out there about some suggesting that the virgin birth is not that big a deal. It is a big deal. You see, there are certain things that we hold loosely in the Christian faith, but there are orthodox truths which we must hold tightly and never let go. The virgin birth of Jesus is non-negotiable. You see, as such, he was born the God-man without the sinful flesh of Adam's race, he was perfect and therefore the only one, perfect one to die for imperfect humanity. This is the incredible 
news of Christmas, the incarnation, Jesus wrapping himself in human flesh, and as the perfect God-man to suffer and die for us. What incredible sacrifice. And that's normally what we think of, isn't it? See, we normally kind of fast forward when we think of the sacrifice of Jesus to, to Easter. But this brings me, you see, to the third thing that I want us to look at this morning, and that is the extent of the incarnation. I could ask it this way, how long did Jesus take on human flesh? Well, you think about that a minute. I mean, was it, was it 33 years while he walked on the earth that he was a human then? What about now? It occurred to me a few weeks ago at a Wednesday night chapel that I had never really taught on this subject before. How did I know? Well, I made the comment that Jesus is still the God-man. He is still fully God and fully man. And there was an audible gasp in the room, and the air was immediately sucked out of the room. What do you mean that Jesus is still human? I thought he was only human when he walked on the earth. But, but, you know, after his resurrection and ascension, he went, he went back to heaven and went back to being just fully God, right? Well, yes, he went back to the, the glorious display of being fully God, but that does not contain the full truth. You see, the Scripture is clear that after the resurrection, Jesus still possessed his human body. But, but let's rewind for just a moment. It's obvious that Jesus was a man before the cross, right? I mean, this needs to be dealt with. There was a heresy that arose early in church history that said, well, Jesus wasn't really flesh, and John dealt with that in 1 John, that which our eyes have seen and our hands have handled. Anybody that says he hasn't come into flesh is a liar. Don't believe him. He has come into flesh. I mean, we, we, we read of him being born of a woman. That's what Christmas is all about. He was reared in the home of, of Joseph and Mary, such that later he would be called the son of Mary and Joseph the carpenter. Luke even tells us that he grew in wisdom and stature as a man. That means in his humanity, in his humanness, Jesus still had to learn to walk and, and talk and, and all the normal things that kids need to learn how to do. That, you don't understand how incredible that is? God in the flesh had him to learn how to walk and talk. Hebrews even tells us that he learned obedience. What? Yes, in ever-increasing measure. That doesn't mean that he was ever disobedient. It just means that he learned, as any child would, uh, what obedience meant. And he grew in his obedience. Let me give you an illustration. When he would be playing outside and Mary said to him, don't cross the street, I know you get run over by a chariot. Jesus then never crossed the street, but he had to learn that he wasn't supposed to. He had to learn to obey his, his mom. Never, never disobeyed. So when, when, when Mary said to little Jesus, good little boys, keep their rooms clean, I just threw that in for you, parents. Good little boy. Jesus always did that, you see. He's never disobedient. We also read that he experienced the same human needs that we face. He, he, he was hungry and needed to eat. Now, let me stop right there. I'm talking about God in the flesh, and I'm saying that Jesus needed something. If 
We've been talking on Wednesday nights in our chapel about the attributes of God, and one of those attributes is that God needs nothing. I made a big point of saying that if you start a sentence with the words, God needs, you can stop right there, you're already in heresy. Because God needs nothing, and yet I say here he was hungry and needed to eat. He was thirsty and needed to drink. He was tired and needed rest and sleep. God in the flesh. He, he experienced a range of emotions as we do. Only his were without sin. He cried. And he was at times angry. No sin. He marveled at people. He, he felt compassion. He was exasperated with his disciples. You would have been too. Of course, the, the, the greatest sign of his humanity is, is he died. I mean, when he was beaten, when he, when, he was, when he was pierced through his hands and his feet and his side, he bled, and there came a time when he stopped breathing and died. God in the flesh. Of course, after he was buried, he was raised from the dead, and you say, oh, okay, that, that must be when he when he shed that, his human flesh, right? I mean, that human cloak, his human body, right? Not exactly. Remember when they came to the tomb, his body wasn't there. Not only that, consider these verses, all of which take place after the resurrection. Do you remember when Jesus first appeared to the disciples? Thomas, one of the disciples, wasn't there. They, they told Tommy, hey, we, we've seen the resurrected Jesus, and he said he wouldn't believe unless he was able to put his finger in his Nail prints in his hand and his side, and sure enough, about a week later, Jesus appeared again and said to Thomas, reach here your finger and see my hand and reach, your, reach here with your hand and put it in my side. In other words, in his resurrected body, listen to this, in his resurrected body, Jesus still bore the marks of crucifixion. You could still see the wounds. Luke chapter 24 he appeared to the disciples, and we read these words, and he himself stood in their midst and said to them, peace be to you. And they were startled and frightened and thought they were seeing a spirit. It must be a ghost. <laughs> and, he, and, he, and he said to them, why are you troubled? Why do you, why do you doubts arise in your heart? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit, a ghost, does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet, and they, well, they still could not believe it because of their joy and amazement. These guys just don't get it. So he said to them, have you anything to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. Stop right there. That is incredibly good news. That means when we get to heaven, we still get to eat. Only mine's not going to be broiled. It's going to be southern fried. Unless Jesus says no. I mean, he clearly wanted them to know that he was in the flesh. Most assuredly, he was in his resurrected body, the first fruits of, of those who sleep in Jesus, meaning that we too will be raised from the dead and receive glorified physical bodies, but it is clear here that Jesus had a physical body after the resurrection, meaning that after the resurrection, get this, he is still the God-man. Huh. Well, what about after the ascension? I mean, maybe when he ascended, he left that body behind. I don't know. Thanks, 
This is the Son of God, the Christ, talking to himself, I guess. Thanks, Jesus. Don't need that anymore. I don't think so. Consider the ascension in Acts chapter 1. He he took the disciples out to the Mount of Olives. He's walking along with them, giving the final instructions, which include the Great Commission. And then we read these words. And they were, and he's he's ascended before them. And as they were gazing intently into the sky, while he was uh, while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. And they said to him, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Again, the clear indication, implication, is that he will return in the same glorified, risen, physical body. Still not convinced. I can see it. A couple final passages. Let's roll the clock forward. It is now decades later in the future. It is now after the ascension. The ascension. The apostle John has been exiled to the island of Patmos where he will receive and, and write what we call the book of Revelation. Yes, I'm venturing into the book of Revelation. Fear not. I'm only going to be in the first, like, five chapters. Say chapter six and following for... I'm hoping after it happens. In chapter 1, John has his vision of Jesus, and we read these words. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the middle of the lampstand, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to his feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash, his head and his hair were white like wool, like snow. You may vaguely remember that. And his eyes were like a flame of fire, and his feet were like burnished bronze when it had been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. Glorified, majestic, magnificent, you bet. Risen human body, it certainly appears so. One like the sun of man. One final passage, Revelation chapter 4, John at this point has been called up to heaven to receive the, the revelation that he's going to record for us. The first scene to capture his eyes is the throne of God, surrounded by the four living creatures who cease not to proclaim day and night, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And it's, as John looks and, and sees this beautiful scene. He, he sees, he notices a scroll in the right hand of him who sits on the throne, and we're in chapter 5 now, and a search is made throughout heaven, and indeed all of creation, don't miss that, all of creation, a search is made to find one, find one worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, and no one was found worthy, so John began to weep. But an angel came to him, and we pick up the story in verse 4 of Revelation 5. And then I began to weep greatly, because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I, I looked, I saw between the throne with the four living creatures, right, and the elders, a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God. 
sent out into all the earth. Certainly there is much, I understand, there is much imagery here, but there is one thing I want you to notice. After the resurrection, Jesus bore in his physical body, in his physical glorified body, the marks of crucifixion. And now in heaven, it's now decades later, he still does. What's my point? Well, first I thought that it was okay to talk about Jesus today since it is his birthday. But I go back to the question of the morning. What is the big deal about the incarnation? It was through the divine birth of the Son of God that Jesus became the God-man, the only one, as search is made throughout heaven, the only one who was worthy to represent man to God and God to man. And this, you see, is God's gift to us on this day. But further, we often think appropriately of the great sacrifice that Jesus is going to make in 33 years, the great sacrifice that Jesus is going to make on the cross, most appropriate, bearing the sins of his people. But the indication in Scripture is that when Jesus became the God-man, when he took on human flesh, it was an eternal decision. He is still the God-man. So what's the big deal about the incarnation? I am not sure we will ever fully comprehend the sacrifice that Jesus made for us in the first Christmas. Let's stand for prayer. Father, there is, there, there is so much here in the story of Jesus culminating in, in his death, burial, resurrection, ascension, seating at your, being seated at your right hand. And as we await the day of his second coming, much, much, much that could be said, but we, but we remember that all of that, that, all that began at the incarnation when through a virgin birth, Jesus took on human flesh an eternal decision to identify with his creatures, to, to, to take on our flesh that we have so soiled, that we have so ruined. He lived a perfect life without sin and then went to a cruel cross where he bore not his own sins, none to bear, but our sins in his body on the tree. And it begins with this incarnation. And so we thank you. We hold on to it tightly. We will never let it go. We will not treat it as frivolous. We love it. We hold it. We revel in it. We honor it. We celebrate it. In Jesus' name, amen.